There we go. Okay, so Henry, you were about to tell us about the um, Goenka retreat that you had and how you found it different than the Mahasi retreat. Yeah, so I just, I'd only done Zen retreats uh, sessions with, before the uh, Goenka 10 day. Um, and I always thought Zen was the more sort of hardcore out of the two. Um, from my, you know, little exposure to um, Goenka's approach at that point. Do Japan uh, like to foster that image with uh, Bushido and all? <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I, so, yeah, certainly wasn't ready <laughs> for what actually occurred. Um, and yeah, I just found it. Um, had someone describe it as boot camp. It felt very much like boot camp. Um, I've heard that term. I've heard uh, that term before. Yeah. Um, and the, the biggest thing really was obviously just seriously long, um, or just massive amounts of sitting. Um, not being able to take any, uh, even like writing materials and stuff. Um, yeah, just felt very intense and. Well, that's generally true for all the retreats. A whole lot of sitting. Mahasi does walking, but with the Goenka, they do any sitting. But writing stuff and uh, notepads and books and cell phones and whatnot are uh, frowned upon everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that it was a. For a beginner's course, I, I couldn't believe it. Having practiced for several years by that point and, and quite fairly intensively, um, the fact that they were, um, it just seemed too much. It seemed too too much of a forceful practice um, for too long. And then sort of, um, certainly for beginners, I just thought, it, you know, it was a real struggle. Everything was, um, yeah, just too intense, really, and and that was sort of um, characteristic of my in to a good degree characteristic of my experience with Zen and Mahasi stuff, anyway. But it seemed like that taken even further. So then my sort of retreat away from that because I thought that was too much was just back into the Zen Mahasi stuff. Um, and then since discovering uh, your approach, it just seemed like. Is the balance that was needed, you know, where it doesn't, you know, it's uh, <laughs> all other stuff before was missing something. Yeah, you just try hard enough and long enough, then eventually something will happen. But I think a lot of the stuff that happens, you know, it doesn't have to be so difficultly attained. And then also, it kind of characterizes the the um, kind of certainly if you have an, an intensive practice it kind of characterizes how you become then as well i felt very um they even talk about an intense practice as if that were a good thing yeah you used by the way just a moment ago you used the word approach like my approach or something like that i would prefer that you think of it as more of a retreat mm. than an mm. approach or yeah. if it is an approach, it's sneaking up from behind. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway, um, yes, there is part of the Western mentality, the idea of struggle. That in fact, uh, the, the whole point of Buddhism starts off with the word dukkha. That's the whole thing. And a lot of people get the idea that, wow, we got to really pour it on in these retreats. We got to make sure that the students see Duke big time. Mm. Mm -hmm. But in fact, the real issue is, is that that gives all of the students a reason or a place to lay blame for all of their Duke. Because mm. they don't like the retreat. Very rarely does a student say, I don't like what I was doing while I had the opportunity of being in a retreat. Mm -hmm. 
We blame the retreat for it. We call Goenka retreats a boot camp. That in fact, the boot camp is the experience between the ears. Mm. And that we're taught, actually we're not taught at all. We're left to our own devices to figure out um, that someone else is to blame, which is the way that we've been live, living our whole lives. Is, is that we don't want to confront Dukkha in the sense that this is mine, I'm doing this. Yeah. Yeah. And yet the retreats were originally for that purpose. Basically, we can say then that the intention of the retreat was is to take any distractions or any dukkhas or anything away from the student so that the student has to deal with his own mind because he's got nothing else to deal with. And that's possible in some cases. But most of the time, it winds up the only thing the student's got to deal with is this dang retreat I'm on. <laughs> and so we blame the format, we blame the retreat, we blame the calendar, we blame the clock. We blame the body and the instructions and all of that kind of stuff. And in a way, we can say that we're going backwards, that the possibly worst thing that a student can do to themselves is take a retreat. I mean, I can see a court judge who's standing in court and somebody gives him smart mouth and he um, confines him to contempt of court. And he sentences him to 10 day go wanker retreat. <laughs> um, so this is where the mindset is. And the whole point of those retreats is to come out of that mindset and we're giving students an exact opportunity. But the statistics are that it takes about seven years between one Goenka retreat and the second Goenka retreat. I think that those are kind of open statistics now, but they're, they were actually um, compiled from the applications that students were doing over the years. I mean, they, they made people fill out applications in the 1980s, and so now with computers, they've got it all documented and everything. Um, and that one of the, the qualities that the retreat volunteers and workers go on is, is that the retreat's a success when very few people leave the retreat early and it's a failure when there's a mass exodus. Mm. Well, why do you think that's true? It's because that's actually measurable. Almost nothing else is measurable. We can at least, you know, when people vote with their feet. But that still gives no clue as to the actual effectiveness. And so here students have been listening to the same Goenka retreat tapes that were done way back in the 1980s. I mean, they did those tapes were done in the time when they were taped. It was VCR back then. Then it made it to CDs. Now I think they've got a whole bunch of stuff on just one DVD. But the courses have not changed since then. Did you know that? Yeah, yeah. Largely at least, yeah. The only thing that's changed is how tough a Gestapo group has been organized in the name of volunteers. Yeah. <laughs> it does seem like that, it really did. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's been stories of people who had their passports confiscated and they wouldn't give them back. No, no, you got to do this whole retreat because I'll feel bad if you leave early with your passport, but I'll feel really good and tough to watch you cry while I won't give you your passport. While I stand here breaking the law, by the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At least that's true in most countries, uh, for sure in India where they do a lot of the Goenka retreats. So the whole point is, is though, if the uh, retreat was successful, 
then people would want to be there. They wouldn't want to leave when the retreat's over. They'd, in fact, want to move in and stay. But they don't. Most people, in fact, almost all of them, very, very, very rarely do I ever see someone who got great benefit out of the first retreat they did. Mm. And generally, um, I mean, what people will say instead is, oh, I got deep insights. But if they didn't get the insight into the nature of the fact that they're miserable and unhappy right now, what good are those insights? <laughs> yeah. Mm. And and so um, this is where the real teaching of the Buddha comes into the fact that people are going to take up a practice only when they feel successful at doing it. And that's true in any case. And it's really, really true with music. It's true with a bicycle. If you get on that bicycle and fall off and get on that bicycle and fall off and get on that bicycle and fall off, how many days are you going to keep getting on that bicycle and fall off? How about music? You sit down and you practice and you go to the lesson and the teacher fusses at you and you come home crying and you try to get it right and you don't like it. How long is these lessons going to last? I bet a year or two at best. But if the child really loves his piano. Okay, so this is in fact what's missing is, is that we have to actually teach the student something that they were never taught before. And that is just to enjoy what's happening right now, free from any outward events that normally what we get joy from is like, you know, you heard shopaholics that people get joy out of buying things. We get joy out of going to the restaurants. We get joy out of gaining. But in fact, one of the highest joys in life is a free buffet. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so the point is, is that all of that stuff's on the outside. And that's exactly what all the stuff that's being limited in a retreat. You don't get a free buffet. You can get gruel <laughs> or whatever that they um, they do, but it's pretty cheap and, and intentionally yeah. so. Mm-hmm. Uh, that they don't, in fact, they don't even want the students to enjoy the food. Yeah, that was probably the biggest thing for me. I remember it felt like you what they were making, you could make it taste nice, but for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Well, here's the point about that is, is that whether we enjoy the food or not, is up to us and that if you understand the way that the suttas are written that in fact mindfully we eat this food not for fattening or beautification or uh but only for the enjoyment of this present moment to gain nourishment of the body okay and then they talk about it in the sense of uh, for the monks, especially to pay really close attention to what you're doing when you're eating. To roll it around in your mouth and to chew it a lot and to suck the juices out and all kinds of stuff. In other words, to really, really pay attention to it. And we can really get into it, especially if the following instructions have to do with make each mouthful a toy to play with to chew it thoroughly, watch what you're doing, get the various flavors out, and in fact, go on an investigation of, is this piece a piece of chili? Or is this piece a piece of onion skin? Or is this tomato? Or what is this thing that I'm uh, paying attention to? Maybe a lettuce leaf, okay? And so we begin to uh, discern that way by paying close attention. And that's part of the practice but many places don't teach that. They want you to have a really bland meal and you don't investigate it. In fact, you got to get this thing over with. Some of the Zen, in fact, make it a speed competition. They're almost a timing. Yeah. So that everybody gets served and the bowl is there and then somebody rings a bell and you're I'm done. <laughs> and that's today's meal, okay? So they they get into those kind of competitions and, and whatnot like that. But the whole quality 
is if we look at the Eightfold Noble Path, we understand that the right thing to do is to start removing all the unwholesome, leaving just the wholesome. That in fact, even uh, Western Buddhism has the idea of thou shalt not attach. No clinging allowed, you know? Yeah. Okay. Except that there are suttas about fortunate attachments. What should, in fact, we hold on to would be wholesome things and let go of and stop clinging to unwholesome things. And what are unwholesome things? Those that bring the danger of dissatisfaction and wholesome things bring bring us closer to a state of satisfaction. That in fact, if we're talking about dukkha, dukkha naroda is the exact teaching and primary teaching and only teaching of the Buddha, then we can understand that that dukkha naroda actually means coming out of dissatisfaction into a state of satisfaction. And the students in the retreats don't practice coming into a state of satisfaction. They practice looking at the dissatisfaction. Note it well, here it is, slapping you in the face. <laughs> and so this is the part that seems to have gotten gone gone astray. But as I said before, it's coming out. This whole point about that we've got to make a change, that this is a change um, model. That in fact, that's why Anicca is so uh important and everybody is saying oh i've got to get insight into into a nietzsche oh i see that things are temporary etc like that the reality is is that we're talking about a samsara a cycle of change and that you're changing and you don't even know it begin to know that you're changing and take control of that change recognize that you're on a cycle and step out of it. Make a big change here. This is what right effort is all about in the Eightfold Noble Path, the effort that it takes to come out of our dissatisfaction and be, be in a state of satisfaction. Over and over and over again, we have to practice this. And in fact, a lot of students, when they start practicing, they don't believe it, they don't think it's going to work, and then they complain because they don't believe it and it don't work. <laughs> And so we have to kind of start with the idea that maybe this stuff can work if I practice it correctly. I can get myself into a good state. And eventually I, we can feel the way that we want to feel. Whenever we remember that we can feel the way that we want to feel, then we feel like that. And when we don't remember that we can feel the way that we want to feel, we wind up feeling the way that we're in the habit of feeling. Sort of like a built-in mental gravity. But if you let go, it's going to fall. It's going to crash on the floor, back into dukkha, back into unsatisfactory. We're in that habit, you know. We've created the gravity field. <clears throat> We could create a different gravity field so that when we let go of something, it puts up into the air. <laughs> but it doesn't. <laughs> we we create a gravity field in our own mind so that when things happen, we don't like it. Mm -hmm. Which is not particularly wholesome. So a big part of the practice then is getting um, interested in investigating why we feel the way that we feel. How does that come about? What kind of thoughts do I have that make me feel bad? And let me experiment with the kind of thoughts that allow me to feel good. And so we bring it into a change model. We've got to put the effort into it in order to get um, something out of it. And this is not taught generally in the retreats. Uh. And so people will go into the retreats miserable and spend the whole retreat in misery and come out really happy that they're no longer in the retreat. <laughs> but they're still miserable. 
But I'm not against retreats. I'm against people being uneducated <laughs> when they go into the retreat. Right, yeah. It seems like if you're only observing, you're not making that change. You just you end up saturating yourself in, in negativity, in dukkha. And it almost seems like there's opposing forces going on, like you're becoming more aware and you're developing some equanimity and you know concentration, clarity, you know, your ability to to see it and to deal with it a bit more skillfully. But if you it's almost like the more you do that, the more you build that skill. But at the same time, if you're not making the change and you're just saturating yourself more in negativity, it's like there's this other force which is, you know, um keeping you stuck in it as well. So it always mm-hmm. seemed like some benefit, but then also I felt stuck in it as well. That's right. So we have to have choices and the choices come through wisdom and wisdom comes from looking and looking and looking and seeing things happening over and over and over again until we begin to see a a possible word we could use would be trajectory. In other words, you look and you see the ball and then you look and you see the ball and then you look and you see the ball. That way that you can, in fact, I don't even have to look. I know where that ball is going. Mm. It's going that way. <laughs> okay, so um, when we when we keep looking, then this is being in the present moment of looking and looking and looking and looking, which was part of the Mahasi method. But here we're also going to be making some changes. What's the use of looking at the ball going through the air if I'm not going to go... <laughs> Gotcha. <laughs> so this is what we're we're looking at is where can we take control of this thing? And the Buddha recommends the first place to take control of it is with our thoughts. We take control of it with the thoughts that we have. And we change those thoughts from unwholesome to wholesome thoughts over and over and over again and pretty soon those hopes and thoughts begin to give us hopes and feelings if we're practicing correctly and one of one of the qualities of that is getting the body in its correct posture which would be that you want to be in a an environment where you feel safe and secure and comfortable And you've already done the Goenka retreat, so surprise, surprise, they have long sitting determinations, which means you ain't going to be comfortable. And yet, if we're going to get the mind comfortable, we need to have the body comfortable. Mm -hmm. That in fact, state four of Anapanasati is getting the body to be at rest, getting it comfortable to the point that it's relaxed. And that's pretty hard to do doing some of the retreat instructions. Yeah. That in fact, there is a use for these strong determination sittings, but only for those who already can sit happily for an hour. But most people, they can't sit happily for five minutes. So why are you going to make them sit miserably for another 55? That's very, very much like giving an infant a dumbbell that they can't pick up. Don't have a chance to pick up that dumbbell. Mm-hmm. And so they go around feeling a failure for the rest of their life because they tried to do something that was beyond their capabilities. This is, in fact, why the Buddha talks about practice in the sense of getting into seclusion, getting away from all of that stuff. And uh, the, the environment that he speaks of is go to the forest, go to the foot of a tree, go to an empty hut, go to a pile of straw and sit down upright, relax and bring mindfulness to the floor. Now, there's a whole lot of stuff that's in there that has to do with seclusion and feeling safe and being isolated away from other things so that we can actually bring mindfulness to the fore. In fact, so that we can begin to practice sati. Mm -hmm. That the Buddha speaks out that we don't find in the retreats. 
that a lot of people don't see that meditation hall as a safe place. You've got watchers. <laughs> and you've got them dangerous things on the other side over there called knees. <laughs> and so, um, and the knees wiggle, by the way. They not only wiggle there, but they wiggle in here too. And so that's um, not a relaxed, comfortable place. And yet the retreat is supposed to mimic an actual practice, but a real practice is when we're actually secluded. That in fact, about the only thing that we need is their gruel and their uh, tapes. Right? But we can do a retreat without that. It's better to actually go camping. It's a lot cheaper, too. You can buy camping equipment for much cheaper than you can buy a, a retreat, especially if you get one of the classy ones. Mm-hmm. So, um, the whole point then is to get away, to get in retreat, to get away from the world long enough to realize that you brought it with you. Yeah. And then leave it again. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I did actually do a a, a nine month retreat uh, like on my own. Um, it wasn't wasn't fully, you know. I'm going for I think they do like 14 hours of sitting a day. I was doing like eight. Um, so I, you know, built up quite an intensive practice up till then, and then just wanted to. Uh-huh. Really, Were you, you know, doing really... that because you wanted something, or did you do that because you liked whatever you were doing? Well, yeah, that's the paradigm shift. Yeah, certainly at the time, it was still this, you know, there's work to be done, in a, you know, in a very driven way, really. Um, and it, again, it, it bore fruit, it bore, you know, insight in, in some sense, but, there, you know, there's some big... Well, where does the insight come into when you have the insight into, I can remove these hindrances from my mind? I can throw that stuff out and get the mind wholesome because that's in fact the first knowledge. The first insight that the Buddha recommends is to have the uh, the point that I'm successful at being capable of removing hindrances. Mm-hmm. And yet I bet you spent that nine months not actually removing hindrances. Staring at them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's what we have to do. And what in this case are the hindrances or the obstructions? Unwholesome thoughts. Thoughts of I cannot do this. Thoughts of this is hard. Thoughts of, oh, I want enlightenment so bad. Or the next thought, oh, I want enlightenment only a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, when is this going to be over? And then thoughts of, oh, I can handle it. When you see the, oh, I can handle it kind of thoughts, those are more wholesome. If you were dead serious about having one wholesome thought up after another unwholesome thought over and over again, you wouldn't have lasted nine months. Mm. So you must have had a few wholesome thoughts in there. Some thoughts of yeah. satisfaction, some thoughts of I ain't leaving here because I like this. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Again, it was these two opposing forces like, yeah, you know, so a lot of good stuff is happening. But at the same time, it's just I feel like it's it's staring that long at negativity it just wires you that way and right uh, but we were raised that way yeah that's the way that we were raised in this society is that kid you're not good enough learn your abcs do your one two threes read that book clean your room do what you're told to do or i'm gonna beat your butt okay and so it has an element of fear built into it you either perform or you get injured And we all come with that, with the attitude of, oh, but it's so hard to perform. Oh, I'm probably not going to be able to perform well enough, and I'm still going to get beat. So what's the point? But we can train our kids better. And here in Anapanasati practice with the Eightfold Noble Path, you can, in fact, retrain your own mind out of that mindset. Mm into the mindset of, hey, this is easy. Hey, I can clean out my mind. 
over and over and over again. We keep putting back wholesome thoughts back in. And pretty soon we begin to feel that way. We literally learn to talk ourselves into feeling the way that we want to feel. And so one of the things that we can do then is to get a few wholesome thoughts that we can use kind of as a substitute. In fact, any thought in and of and by itself can either be wholesome or unwholesome depending upon our attitude. In other words, I could say this is hard, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> or I can say, oh, this is so hard. <laughs> you know, it depends upon how we feel about it. And this is part of the reason why we're going to start changing the thoughts, because that actually gives us an opportunity to see how these thoughts make us feel. And then we can begin to change how we feel. Like everything's all right. Everything's OK. Enlightenment. Oh, I don't need that. I got everything I need. Everything is OK. Who needs Nevada when I can just chill out? Yeah. Because, see, we put in, uh, enlightenment in Nevada way off someplace rather than, here it is, just chill. That's all it means, just to hang out, just to chill. Everything's already okay. And so we begin to feel satisfied, safe and secure and comfortable with the body. And we begin to feel safe, secure, and comfortable also in our emotional state. And that leads us into the state of then satisfaction. And satisfaction in this case is exactly opposite of dissatisfaction. The satisfaction that we're talking about that any brand new student, the first time they sit down, they can get themselves into a state of satisfaction. And that's all the Buddha teaches right then, right then and there. Get yourself into a state of satisfaction. Apply that and then start to sustain it. Apply and sustain, apply and sustain. Or as um, you know, I, I, I don't know if you've heard the, the joke, but every shampoo bottle that's sold in Walmart or Walgreens or, or at 7-Eleven, every bottle of shampoo has the full teaching of the Buddha right there on the back label. You know what that teaching is? Rinse and repeat. <laughs> so that's what we're doing here. Rinse and repeat. But we actually have to take the effort to do the rinsing. And then we rinse again. And then we repeat. And then we repeat. We keep cleaning the mind, taking the unwholesome thoughts out, putting wholesome thoughts in over and over again. And hey, you can get through a 10 day retreat like a piece of cake. Nothing to it. All I have to do is sit here and enjoy. Just sit here and enjoy the moment. Mm -hmm. Because I'm having thoughts of enjoyment, I can feel enjoyment. And let's do that again. Because my enjoyments don't last long. I go right back into misery like everybody else. So let's remember keep coming back out of that misery into the joy. Keep looking at these thoughts to see is it wholesome or not. <laughs> and this is very beginner's practice. But after all of these years, you haven't actually added all of the ingredients. You've only gotten the Mahasi method only has two. And in the Anapanasati that Goenka teaches, he's only got three. And he actually misses that fourth one in the Yarkaya Nupasana, which is relaxation of the body. How can a strong determination sitting bring relaxation to the body? Mm -hmm. or, or can we say it this way? Once a student is, is um, uh, let us say, enthusiastically uh, progressing along the path so that he can sit for long times relaxed, then why not try it for a full hour? Mm -hmm. Okay, so in, in <laughs> fact, this is the strong determination settings are done for the wrong people at the wrong time in their career. Mm. This is why people hate those practices so much because they don't have the ability to do it. 
But if you go into that I, uh, practice with the idea, I can do this. And then three minutes into it, I can do this. <laughs> and then 10 minutes in it, yep, I can do this. And then 20 minutes into it, wait a minute, I can do this. And we keep going through it until finally the bell rings. And then we say, I told you I could do this. <laughs> but if we forget to do that along the way, and then it gets hard. Yeah. It gets hard because we're in the habit of things are being hard. So we have to remember to have those hopes and thoughts. I can do this. I can do this. Mm-hmm. And then pretty soon, over time, we actually develop the attitude that I can do this. That's where the lion's roar comes in. The lion, you know, the Buddha was a lion. That's the kind of self-confidence that we're practicing practice I can do this mm-hmm. also it has the word um, in the um, Eightfold Noble Path the word is Sama Sankapa which has to do with right attitude because we're all we all start off as victims we all start off as little children most of the bravado that kids pick up is false we become bullies we become tough guys but that's because we're still trying to protect the soft marshmallow inside. Mm-hmm. Where with Buddhism, with the practice of the Buddha, we're actually going in to re-nourish that inside. Mm-hmm. To become friends with ourselves, to give ourselves confidence. The Pali word for that is Shraddha or Shraddha. It's part of the, uh, the balancing. You probably heard of that, balancing the faculties, right? Well, where is your mojo? Where is your can-do attitude? Where is your confidence? It's to be developed. Yeah. Just like the sati, just like the um, uh, uh, the investigation skills, just like the effort or the energy. But now we're adding this fourth ingredient, confidence, to that mix, so that we we balance that stuff. And when we get that confidence, that can-do attitude, then you can walk like this right into that strong determination sitting because you're strong <laughs> and you're determined that you're going to sit there and you can't, okay? But how do you mostly, when, when <clears throat> students go to those strong determination sittings, how do they go in there? <laughs> oh, no. Oh. <laughs> So, um, this is this is basically the kind of change that Western Buddhism, or most specifically psychology, misses out on um, the repetitive quality that people will go into a psychotherapy session and get deep insights and pay $400 and go home thinking about those insights. But then tomorrow we forgot about those insights. And next week we got to go back to the psychologist and pay him again. You get those same damn insights that we didn't practice at home. That's sort of like taking music lessons and not practicing between the music lessons. Well, the psychologists, they don't want you to practice the music. They want you to come back and get another lesson. <laughs> they can make more money that way. <laughs> they don't want to ban Clyburn as a student. They can't make any money off of the industry's better than they are. <laughs> and, and so um, that's one of the things. But the thing that all the others are missing, even though that the, the retreats in the Mahasi keep going, Keep coming back, keep repeating over and over again. That rinse and repeat is built into the Mahasi method. But what is is difference is the rinsing out quality. You got to clean the mind. You can't just inspect it like it was a junkyard and then come back and inspect it again. It's going to be the same old junkyard. No, you got to take that piece of junk and throw it out. And say, ah, I got rid of that. What's ne- who's next? <laughs> and we keep going like that. And so this is the uh, the basic practice then that came out of this teaching of the Four Noble Truths. And yet somehow or another, these little wires have gotten entangled or disconnected or whatever like that. <laughs> 
so that the puppet doesn't dance around with near the dexterity that he could if all of the strings were attached. So that we, if we do, in fact, start practicing the Eightfold Noble Path with all its little features, we'll get good results and learn to dance. Mm -hmm. But that's legal, by the way. Everything's in a dance. Everything is music. Is that can you get into your rhythm? Can you find that? Or are we going to stay in a mental noise of this and that and then this and then that? Let's find a way of harmonizing all of this stuff, which is what the fifth item on the Eightfold Noble Path is, right area samati, or semi area samati, is actually right organization or unification of mind which would better be referred to is let's get things in tune let's get some harmony here let's have a bass rather than merely a rumble let's have a high c rather than a screech you know <laughs> this is the way that we go because we got a whole orchestra inside if we just get it in tune and how do we do that? By putting it back together correctly, by putting every thought back wholesome. Don't let it get out of tune or out of whack or whatever. Get it out of uh, focus or out of uh, wholesomeness and bring it back into wholesome. Mm -hmm. Now, along with this, much of the unwholesome thoughts that we have is basically a dialogue between or an argument between ourselves in the sense of we quote some rule. Oh, you want to go to town. Oh, you got to go shopping. And then the other side of it is, I don't want to go. Oh, you got to write that email. I don't want to write that email. You got to write that email. I don't want to write that email. <laughs> so we wind up being a crowd inside, mm. often yelling at ourselves to do the things we don't want to do. Yeah. So that whole dialogue then is unwholesome. Can we catch it? And put a stop to it and say, hey, guys, love each other, nourish each other, take care of yourself rather than being in an argument with yourself. Mm -hmm. So in in the regard of psychology, we can call then that set of rules is the superego in Freud's terms or the parent ego state in Burns terms. Or in the Buddhist terms, it's the Siva Bhatta Paramasa, the second fetter. Mm. It's going around ordering ourselves to do this, to do that. You ought to go to a retreat, you know. <laughs> you got to get out of the bed and go to that meditation hall, you know. Okay, so we actually are driven by the rules. And that personality is actually determined by the rules that we have and our uh, response to them. That not only do we have the rules, we also have an internal response, which is then the child ego state. Freud calls it the id. Uh, the Buddha calls it the self or selfishness. And so when we learn about personality view, what that means is the self is defined by the rules. When we stop having so many rules, it gets really, really fluffy and difficult to define who you are. Mm -hmm. And when you keep doing that, you can begin to say, hey, this is good stuff. I can look at what I'm doing. I can change my mind. I can come out of it. And then that's when the doubt finally eradicates so that you have knowledge and vision of what is the path and what is not the path. And those are the first three fetters that you've probably heard about someplace. Mm -hmm. Fetters of knowledge. And we do that by keep practicing this Eightfold Noble Path, this Four Noble Truths. That's how we come out of that. As we begin to see who we are is based upon all the stories that we tell ourselves about all the ways things ought to be, rather mm -hmm. than enjoying how things actually are. Mm -hmm. The actuality is that we live in a paradise. But the story is, is that, oh, no, it needs to be, the grass needs to be cut. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> you got to go repair that lawnmower. And so now all of a sudden, it, it's not a paradise anymore. Mm -hmm. It's work. 
we got to go do something to make it a paradise again, where in fact, it's already a paradise. Grass grows, you know, <laughs> all by itself. And there's a Zen coin about that. <laughs> so just let the grass grow by itself. It's, already, it's still a garden, even if the grass grows, we don't have to go cut it. Yeah, and it feels, feels mad that how easily practice can become that if it doesn't have this element, you know, where the whole point is you're supposed to be, you know, getting past that, but then the mm -hmm. practice becomes that, you know. And, uh, yeah, it was it felt like such a shame to realise how, almost how arbitrary it is. You could have been in that paradise the whole time, practising that paradise, or you can be practising this thing that, you know, is supposed to be approaching it, but it's always still this forceful... Mm -hmm. I got to get inside into the next inside into the next inside when I'll be there someday. Yeah. Rather than having this inside is, hey, we're already home. We're already there. Mm. Take the big leap. <laughs> mm. All the way over to the other side. Mm -hmm. We don't have to crawl through hell to get to hell's gates. We can just take a flying leap right across. Yeah. Because it was all mental anyway. And so this is what the Buddha teaches is let's change those unwholesome thoughts. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing that we need to do is work with those discursive thoughts to get them wholesome. Later, there's a whole lot of stuff to look at. But we have to get this skill of the right effort to be able to make these thoughts wholesome. But in fact, one of the secrets is, is that once we have the ability to get all of the thoughts wholesome, one after another, after another, then the only insights we're going to be left with are wholesome insights, because the only thing we can find is wholesome. Why is that? Because we're looking at reality without the blinders and the blinkers of the, uh, the hindrances. And so we can actually see reality as it is. And so, and so with that, that means that the only thing that we have to look at now are the wholesome things, like the various jhana factors, which I've been talking about but not really mentioning as a jhana factor, but we've covered them all, especially for the first jhana, applying and sustaining, keep going and keep going to remove the hindrances so that we begin to feel satisfied and when we feel satisfied over and over again which is the sukha now we begin to get the attitude i can do this which is the pity the the championship the lion's roar and there we have the five jhana factors and a six when we add the relaxation of the body and so this whole hour I've been talking about the first jhana, and now I finally mentioned that that's what we're talking about. <laughs> Getting ourselves into a state of pleasure. Mm -hmm. So it seems like uh, that's, you know, sustained throughout the entirety of our practice. Um, but would you say that that should be kind of my sole focus for a good while now, even though, you know, I had a lot of experience with Vipassana, there's been this dearth of, um, you know, the jhana factors. So it had seemed appropriate, at least for a good while, to be focusing basically exclusively on that. One of the rumors, by the way, that runs rampant within the Mahasi groups is, is that all Anapanasati, the way that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa and those guys practice it is only for the monks because it takes so much time and dedication to be able to be happy before mm. you get insights. But the Mahasi people, that's for ordinary folk, that's for the lay people who have to tough it through. You can't sit down and enjoy your life. You've got to have a really rough, tough time until you get to the point of the dark night of the soul, so they say, misery, disgust, um, uh, despair, um, a feeling of helplessness, followed by a strong desire to get the hell out of here, because you are getting, getting hell out. And so that then is followed by a strong determination 
to start taking the right effort. And this is step 11 in the 16 step on, uh, stages of insight, followed by step 12. What's step 12? The Eightfold Noble Path mm-hmm. and the Noble Truths. Mm-hmm. So we got to go through hell before we can get to heaven's gate. And I'm inviting you, hey man, you're already in heaven. You don't even have to open the gates. Just go start with step 12, go right to it. You don't have to worry about the mind dissolving and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. But at least it, it just felt like it didn't doesn't need to be. Like the gladdening of the gladdening of the mind and stuff just seems to make sense as the first thing mm-hmm. so that from there, you know. Once we get on the path, that's the whole point is, is that the Mahasi method through that 16 stages of insight doesn't even get on the Buddha's path until step 12. Yeah. I mean, that's almost a joke. That's that's worth putting on MSNBC or or the BBC. (laughs) Yeah. I'm I'm hoping to do a a PhD in, um, I I did want to combine uh, Buddhist studies with neuroscience, um, but you, you've really um, sort of lit a fire of passion for the, you know, quite hardcore um, diving into the Buddhist studies and you know scholastic sort of stuff, and just find it so fascinating. Yeah, like, yeah, kind of where has it gone wrong, and like, what you know, um, mm-hmm. well, you know, science, we- actual and. We can say then, in a way, that Buddha was much more like Freud in the sense of being an armchair psychologist, except that Freud himself says that, no, he's more of a researcher. He's not a cure-all, that the Buddha had both the diagnostic and the cure. Freud didn't have the um, uh, the cure, but he didn't have the diagnostic, but only from the armchair. Now that neuroscience is coming in, I mean, how many times have we been doing autopsies and cutting up cadavers and didn't have a clue about what the brain was when the brain's dead? But now with magnetic um, nuclear magnetic resonant images, we can actually get a pretty good map out there. And then with the functional MRIs, we can actually experiment with saying, hey, do this and see if that happens. Now do this and see if that happens. And we can begin to get some research in there, and they're finding out all kinds of things about how the hippocampus and the um, uh, cerebellum are related, mm-hmm. and other things like that. So, in fact, in a way, we can say that the human brain is manufactured in segments. Mm-hmm. But there is the old reptilian brain, and they call it that because that's what snakes and alligators have, the, the anterior cortex, which is, by the way, completely hooked up to the body. But the mm-hmm. frontal cortex doesn't have much to do with the body. He's got to go through the reptilian brain, the anterior cortex, to get anything done. Mm-hmm. And then we have the mid-cortex, which is the um, uh, or the temporal lobes or the mammalian brain and uh, the midsection like there. And so there's your Freudian or a burn version of parent, adult and child. We've got that in actually the physical way the brain is working, as well as the fact that the Buddha talks about these three aspects of the mind also. And that we have to bring a way to integrate them, to get them in harmony or in tune with one another to become a family inside because we're familiar with the various parts. And so I'm congratulating neuroscience. I mean, in sure, right in the next 25, maybe 50 years, they'll catch up with the Buddha. <laughs> Except that they'll have a really good detailed roadmap yeah. along the way, because they'll be doing it through hard research rather than through um, a more NLP version of it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean by NLP with Bander and Grinder? Yeah, yeah, neurolinguistic. You got it. Neurolinguistic. What's that last word? Programming. Program. That's what we're doing, buddy. <laughs> we're doing that reprogramming. <laughs> yeah. We got to reprogram that thing out of those unwholesome thoughts into the wholesome thoughts. Mm-hmm. 
And another way of saying it, that means that we're telling the amygdala, chill, baby, chill. Lighten up. Everything's okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this is the kind of language that we need to have so that we can keep that reptilian brain feeling safe and secure and comfortable and satisfied. Mm-hmm. Rather than on alert. In danger. Work to do. Mm-hmm. That we need to wake up to find out that we're not being swallowed by that giant snake right now. But that's all in imagination. And if we're watching carefully, we can get away from any real snake. Mm-hmm. It's the ones who approach us from behind. <laughs> Sneak up from the reptilian brain. <laughs> And so we got to watch. That's what the sati is all about, is to watch this stuff. Watch those unwholesome, creepy, crawly thoughts that keep us so dissatisfied in our lives. And start changing it so that you have a chance of being satisfied. Now, this actually does not have to be done all the time and forever sitting on a cushion in a meditation hall. It just needs to be done any time that you can remember. And so we use the cushion time to help develop the skill of sati so that we can remember and remember and remember and remember and remember and and then we can go out in the world and we can continue to remember. Mm But we have to remember to be here now. That's the first thing, sati. That's why it's so important that we develop sati. But Mahasi method is doing a a great deal of of noting or to remember to note. But now we have to remember that we got to make a change too. Yeah. And you disagree on the idea that, well, you said it earlier about the unification of minds um, being samadhi more than um just in mahasi and and in I, I did a lot of rinzai zen most of the zen i did with rinzai which rather than just sitting is a lot more again forceful and it's all about constant concentration oh um, you finally said the magic word i was waiting for you to say it okay <laughs> the word samadhi does not translate into the word concentration that in fact in some respects it's exactly opposite of concentration You've done the Zen thing, okay, so you know about the Zen stick, the bamboo thing with the slices in it, right? Okay, so who gets hit with that Zen stick? Um, person who looks like they've dozed. Pardon? Person who looks like they're dozing. Okay, but there's many different kinds of dozing. Mm. In other words, someone who is not paying attention to the fact that the Zen master is in the room standing right behind him. Mm. Okay. But wait a minute. I thought we were supposed to be concentrated here. So I'm going to be really, really concentrated. And I don't care a flying rip about whether there's a guy behind me or not with a stick. And now what happened? Okay. <laughs> That's the problem with concentration is, mm. is that it's yeah. exactly opposite of the real point of the Samadhi means bringing all the factors together. Mm-hmm. And so we're actually not practicing. Here's another example of it. The little kid wants to play the um, whack-a-mole. You've seen it. I mean, years ago, it was in the, um, uh, 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 the lobby of the department stores and whatnot. And the kid's going to get this one. He sees that lower left-hand corner, and he's waiting there, and he's waiting there. And when that one comes up, whack, he got it. And it comes again, and he's waiting, and it comes, and there it is, and he whacks it again. And he's missed 15 other Mm whack-a-moles because he's not watching what's going on. He's too concentrating on getting this one. Mm -hmm. And so samadhi is actually an opening, and concentration is kind of a closing of the mind. Mm Mm-hmm. And so this is where we're uh, taking it is, is that, in fact, I would go so far as to say that people confuse concentration and deep meditation with just 
sluggishness, drowsiness, and that's the hindrance. Mm -hmm. And we call it deep samadhi. Where in fact, you're just not paying attention to the fact that the, uh, the Zen master is just waltzed into the room with his stick. Mm -hmm. But this yeah. is one of the problems with the Western Buddhism is these bad translations, lots of bad translations. I've already played with several of them with you, including yeah, the yeah. Bible. Okay. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to dive into that, yeah, a lot. Well, yeah. okay, then dive into it in the sense that it's cool. It's not a hot plunge, it's a cold plunge. Mm. Just dive right in, enjoy. That it's shiverously cold. It's cool. Mm -hmm. Just like there's no friction at all inside the mind between the parent and the child, between the various um, references of the mental states or the mental activities that we have when they're all in harmony together. There's no friction. And therefore, we're in the state of Nibbana. We're cool. Yeah. It's not special, it's ordinary. Western mind states have made everything about Buddhism so, so special. Oh, this is special, jhana is special, nirvana is special, enlightenment is special, uh, stream entry is special, all this work really hard and this attains something so I can be special too. <laughs> and the reality is, is that the Buddha was just speaking in a language that everybody understood there. But here, the language is also foreign. And so we make it sound really special, especially after so many, maybe a thousand or two of Christianity, which tries to make a whole bunch of stuff special. Mm. Everything but you, you're a sinner. Mm -hmm. You're broken. You need a plastic Jesus on the dashboard of your truck or you're going to run into that tree. <laughs> Okay, so in fact, Christianity is designed to keep people in the loser's position. Mm. Yeah. So what we can say is then about the Buddha is, is let's get into the lion's position. Let's become a winner. How do we become a winner is by being successful over and over and over again. Successful at what? Being able to control our own mind. Much less that um, the the idea of concentration or samadhi that I had before was it always felt artificial. It's like you're trying to, um, you know, whether you're just focusing on the breath, trying to do that without any variation, um, and then going into practicing life and just trying to focus on whatever you're doing. It always felt like because it's so intense, because it's so forceful, it felt artificial. It felt like I couldn't just be in a moment with mm -hmm. whatever's actually going on because it's all kind of there's no nibbana in all of that forcing yeah, here yeah, we're yeah. going to be practicing in the fact that everything is really easy mm. yeah so practice everything's really easy rather than practicing everything's very hard mm -hmm. when we practice everything's very hard then that's a hindrance to making it easy but if we practice yeah. everything is easy, then that hindrance is removed and then everything gets really easy. <laughs> so go practice this, go play with it, go enjoy yourself. Yeah. Don't put time limits on it. Then mm. instead, go for the point of getting yourself feeling really, really good. Mm -hmm. And then see if you can get up and walk around feeling really good. Mm -hmm. And then come back and sit down and feel really good again. Okay, so that's the way to go. Keep trying to get yourself into a really, really good feeling state, which is basically safe, secure, comfortable, satisfied, and successful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A lot of unwiring, rewiring. <laughs> One new okay. thought at a time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can do it in that way, isn't it? Good mm -hmm. at the start, good at the middle. Right. Yeah. So that's in fact right. We're practicing good in the beginning to where the Mahasi method is. It's not good in the in the beginning and it's hell in the middle. Mm. Yeah. 
And so let's practice incorrectly the way that the Buddha recommends is, yeah, let's do it right. Let's get some good benefit right right from the very beginning. And then that um, uh, good results deepens and grows into a deep, deep satisfaction. So let's let's go ahead and finish now. Mm-hmm. And um, a couple of things. One is, um, when are you going to call back? Um, I'd really love to dive into it as much as possible. So um, as you know, as soon as you'd be good for, I'd be I'd be here. So okay. Well, let's say once or twice a week. Your choice. Yeah. I would yeah. recommend, though, that you go get some results. You come back to me saying, you're right, <laughs> it works. And then yeah, we can yeah. take it from I, there. Yeah, and I've definitely got some already. It's been brilliant, yeah. Um, okay. So, yeah. Excellent. All right, well, we'll see you in a few days then. Yeah, thank you very much, Damarato. Really, uh-huh. really appreciate it. See you soon. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye.